From Pernalulu, the Southern Highlands, or cruising the Coronation Islands, they're all up listening to Macca on a Sunday morning. I'm just south of Brisbane, Macca, and I'm heading up to Brisbane. The next couple of days, I'll be picking up oyster shells from up there and around the restaurants in Brisbane, and we take them to a local transfer station. Then we uh, take them down to the port of Brisbane to Ozfish, where they're sterilised for about six months. And then we do have a working bee twice a month, Macca, and then we put these baskets, 20 kilo baskets, in the water at the port of Brisbane for research. We then pull these baskets up and we count how many oysters are growing on these oyster shells. Wow. It's amazing. It's amazing when you see, when you pull these baskets out, all the marine life that's growing in these cleaned what, oyster shells. What a wonderful amazing. thing. How do you know oh, about that? Oh, look, I got involved with it. I'm, I'm a Rotarian macker, <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is a pretty easy sort of thing to do. We can just go to the restaurants and, and uh, collect oyster shells. Yeah. It's taken hikes as morning sunlight breaks along the Yarra. Judges, barristers, chefs, baristas, designers, artists, fashionistas. It's really very Catholic on a Sunday morning. Yeah, Macker in the morning turns my week around. He picks me up when I feel down. I wait all week for Macker on a Sunday morning. The big wet's here, at least for some. The dams are full, the rivers run. As one wag said, who shot the El Nino brothers? On Kilto Station, Roebuck Plains, through drought, bushfire, flooding rains, we celebrate Australia on a Sunday morning. My weekly fix, Macca, on a Sunday morning. Good morning and welcome wherever you are. Lots of uh, things happening around Australia today, mostly in the form of rain. Certainly lots of uh, New South Wales is waterlogged. Victoria's got flooding rains around Shepparton and all sorts of places. Rochester, which is the home of Oppie, Sir Hubert Offerman, the great bike rider. There's a memorial to uh, Oppie there. But, um, yeah, a lot of rain and probably more to come. But um, just got to gird your loins, I suppose, and just uh, get on with it. Our number, 1300 700 Before the news, uh, I was talking to um, Clyde Thompson, who's in Sydney, but works now in Nairobi. Uh, Clyde was with the RFDS, but he's with a similar uh, operation there in Nairobi, but he's in Sydney for a, I don't know, sabbatical or something. Clyde Thompson, are you still there? Hello, how are you? Yeah, good, mate. Um, good, mate, yeah. Are you on a sabbatical or what's the story? Oh, no, I'm, I'm just back in Sydney to see what rain looks like. <laughs> 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 it's so dry in Kenya at, at the moment. I tell you, it's just. But it's the thing is that when it's wet in Australia, it's dry in Kenya, in in Africa, and that seems to be the way it goes. And yeah. and vice versa, I suppose. Yeah, vice versa. Yes, that's right. So, mm. But uh, no, it's interesting times in Kenya. We um, been through a COVID period of time, and uh, different uh, countries have reacted to it different ways. And uh, but. Um, Nairobi got through it pretty well, and uh, we did a lot of work uh, as an aerobatical organisation, but also as a primary health organisation, distributing COVID vaccines, but also working with the United Nations and the embassies and the, the, to evacuate people who were, had COVID back to Europe when they wanted to go back to Europe and so forth. So we're very busy, but as the RFDS and the Emirate Flight Health Service cooperate due to the royal patronage of both organisations. Um, we got a lot of uh, information out of James Sheriff for Western Australian section, which we applied, which was terrific. And uh, we also used our own, uh, what we called isolators, which we put a patient in a capsule and then transport them in the capsule. It must be terribly uncomfortable. I wouldn't like to get in it, but mm. uh, it was very effective because none of our staff got COVID as a result of that. Uh, and uh, through three years of uh, doing COVID evacuations. And how how has COVID or COVID affected um, the people of Nairobi? Has there been a, a large death toll or what's the story? No, it hasn't. Well, the other thing is, of course, you don't know whether to trust the statistics or not, but uh, certainly a lot lower than it has been in European countries. But it's a very fit population. Uh, and because uh, I said, well, if you look at the slums, there's a big slum in uh, Nairobi. And I said, well, how are those people going to cope? Because they're living cheek by jowl. 
And the medical view I got, because we've got a university there, uh, they said, look, those people have got so much immunity from everything that's been thrown at them, it, they'll just breeze through this. <laughs> and they're right. Yeah, it was, you know, and it, it, uh, it didn't affect them at all. But it was interesting, though, because in some places like Tanzania, the president of Tanzania, who remained unnamed, got up and called a public meeting and said, I've talked to God and God's going to protect you all from COVID. And he subsequently died. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, so, so the contract wasn't very good <laughs> <laughs> exactly um, I'm talking to Clyde Thompson uh, Clyde I, on my desk I've got a book um, called The Flying Doctor um, yeah. about uh, Clyde Fenton um, who was yeah. sort of a flying doctor of sorts um, he was a doctor and he flew uh, in in the Northern Territory in I suppose the late 30s and the 40s um, yeah and uh, and went out to isolated properties where there was no airstrip because you know I suppose you could talk better than most. The nineteen thirties was very early days in terms of aviation, wasn't it? Oh, very early. And he was in the uh, sort of uh, fabric, you know, glue and fabric uh, uh, time of aircraft at that stage. And Clive was a great one for ignoring authority. Yeah. The, uh, the civil aviation people tried to ground him a lot. And it always reminds me of a story when I was in uh, western New South Wales and Casa came in and one of the pilots there had lost his licence and he said to him, he said, Jim, yeah, I'm sorry you lost your licence. And the Jim said, well, it doesn't affect the flying at all. So, so when Clive Fenton lost his licence, it didn't affect his flying at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he did amazing things, didn't he, really? And and he flew his little... Was it a gypsy moth or a tiger moth? Gypsy moth, I think. It was a gypsy moth. It was a gypsy moth, and he flew that all over the place, and he landed in such improbable places. And he you flew it to China. It. He flew to China yeah. from from where he was in Catherine, I think. That's where he was sort yeah. of based. And he flew it to China through, you know, uh, through Bali and over the mountains and Indonesia, and my God. Um, and when he talks about that flight, I mean, oh, and flying, you know, Storms and stuff, and flying, you know, what a hundred feet off the off the um, off the ocean, you know, with uh, winds yeah. and all sorts of stuff, you know. Um, yeah. Clyde Fenton. The, the book was called, uh, or is called, Flying Doctor Clyde Fenton, and uh, just an amazing man, an amazing man. Yeah, it was. But the thing is that everybody now that flight that he did to China was an amazing flight. Everybody talks about the England to London races and you know, how they went through weather and so forth. Well, he went just about the equivalent distance on his own without support in a fabric-covered aeroplane oh. and got there. Yes, you know? exactly. And when you read when you read the descriptions of him flying over mountains and he didn't think he could get that high and he had fuel and he's flying close to the ocean and being buffeted and didn't oh and then he got to some places and they said you can't leave so he just took I think he took off one place illegally and uh, but just an amazing flight as you say you know you talk you talk about the the daring do that's a that's a daring do if ever you, if ever I've heard one a daring do uh, a yeah. jaunt in in such a little daggy little plane yeah, but he he was a, a real adventurer, but he did good as well. Oh, so, and yeah, now he he did. He wasn't one that, who did it just for the uh, accolades that he would get or the publicity he would get. He actually treated people as well, and but he didn't make a lot of noise about it. No, yeah. and the the other thing, the other thing, I remember there's a bit in the, in the book about where he he lands somewhere, and there's a couple of old ringers who are out there, and they've both got bad teeth, and so he. He said, well, I'm not a dentist, but he said, but I'll give it a go. And so he get the first one. He got the first one. <laughs> and he didn't, I don't think he had any. So he gave him some whiskey or something. He didn't have any anesthetic. So he gave him some whiskey and whatever. And But by the time he got it out, and then he says, okay, now you're next. He says, oh, Arthur, it's got a lot better now, Doc. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling a lot better now. That's right. <laughs> so, so he, he didn't worry about after the trials and tribulations of the first bloke, his mate, yeah. yeah. Oh, dear. Oh. Clyde, great to talk to you, mate. Um, it'd be, Good to talk to you. At, uh, yeah, uh, we don't – I can't – I suppose I shouldn't say this, but I can't remember what a drought was like because it seems to have been rain, raining forever here, but it hasn't, of course, but it just seems no. like that when people, you know, around Forbes and places like that, the 
and all out further west on the Paru, and the uh, water's just laying around everywhere, and Victoria's copping it, and Tassie's copped it, and and there seems to be rain everywhere. Yeah, it does. I mean, even even Broken Hill got some rain recently, got yeah. seventy millimeters. So it was terrific. Yeah, yeah. But, well, but we went through elections in in Kenya as well, uh, which was interesting in August. And uh, and, and they were they were fine because I think last time there was some. There always seems to be problems in with elections in in some countries in Africa, doesn't there? There were all, but this one was interesting because Kenyatta stood down after his three years of term, which is very unusual in Africa because they seem to make up reasons. My country needs me. I've got to stay and go for Like but Mr. He, Jai. Like yeah, Mr. Jai exactly in China right. is making reasons that's why right. he should stay. Yeah, well, that's right. They're following the Jai principle. But uh, he then said that don't vote for my deputy, William Ruto, because he's dishonest. Vote <laughs> for the opposition leader. <laughs> and... Well, would you believe it? Ruto got up and won the election. So Kenyatta is highly embarrassed. But there wasn't there wasn't a lot of uh, demonstrations. I mean, because you know, as they demonstrate in Africa, they don't have placards; they have machetes. It's very, and, you know, seventeen hundred people got killed the last time they had a election in two thousand and thirteen. But this time, it was very quiet. They went to the high court, and they accepted the decision. And well, when you look at it, you look at the result you realise it was a draw because Otinga, who got the, he got the Senate, he got the, won the House and the Senate, and then Ruto won the House of Assembly. So basically they're both governing. And it's a democracy of sorts. That's right, a democracy of sorts, but it saved a lot of uh, lives. Yeah. Clyde, great to talk to you, mate. Keep in touch. Great to talk to you. But now, the other thing, just before we go, Quick. I was asked in Africa, what was the definition of Australia? And I said, as someone who listens to Macca. There you go. <laughs> uh, that's a bit uh, drawing a long blow. But thank you very much, Clyde. Nice to talk to you. Cheers. Good All on right. you, mate. Cheers, mate. Tomo's in Ebor. Morning, Tomo. Good morning, Macca. How you going? Not too bad, mate. Just tell you about what happened yesterday. What happened? I uh, went fishing. We had a light frost in the morning, and I went fishing down the river, and um, yeah, caught a fifty-eight centimetre brown trout. It's huge. That's um, about what uh, in the old language? That's about fifty-eight centimetres. Two divided by two, about twenty-four, nearly two foot long. Is it? Yeah, one foot eleven inches thereabouts. Yeah, and um, yeah, it was just a massive fish, and I used garden worms, and I've caught thirty-eight rainbow trout last season and this season combined, and they hit the worm like a bullet. You know, they jump out of the water like a marlin, but this thing was different. It just nibbled it, nibbled it, and then just dived down deep. And I went down yesterday arvo again. I caught a rainbow trout in the afternoon, but before I caught the rainbow trout. I was walking, luckily I had my gumboots on because it's very muddy and boggy down there. And uh, this red-bellied black snake must have been curled up and I've trotted on it and I've looked down and I thought, I said an expletive and, um, yeah, it wanted to get away from me and I wanted to get away from him, but it was underneath my right gumboot. And so I just gently lifted my gumboot up and I was about two foot away from the river and it just went into the reeds on the river. But, yeah, it freaked me out a bit. I'll say, he didn't bite you, but you're lucky you had your gumboots on, I'd say. Yeah, well, I always wear my gumboots down there because it's uh, sort of ankle-high grass and the grass is growing. It was pretty warm yesterday. That's probably why he was out sunning himself. Well, they're probably waking up. They hibernate, don't they, in the winter? And it's been cold in Ebor, I know. Yeah, yeah, it has been very cold winter. Yeah, so um, maybe, you know, first warm day, you see that, you see the ants start to swarm and the... Fish start to, yeah, wake up a bit and, yeah. Yeah. All right, Tomo, uh, so you you live in Ebor? No, I'm in my motorhome just on a cattle property. All right. A grey nomad. I see, travelling around and just enjoying yourself. Yeah, well, I've been here since February, so I'm not doing too much travelling. I go back up the coast to the border sort of thing. I saw you years ago at Creed Heads Twin Town Services Club doing a concert there. All right, uh, yeah. And the next day, I pulled up at Cabarita Headland, and um, 
there was this bloke standing out in the front in shorts. And I said, that looks like Macca. And I went and introduced myself to you. That was going back uh, probably 18 years 18 years ago or something like that. Yeah, we used to play regularly at Twin Towns. So it was good too. Was good good sound pace, a good room. It was so lovely. Yeah, it was a good concert. Yeah. Uh, so, Tomo, you just uh, please yourself, really, do you? More or less, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, can't, can't complain. I get paid by the hour. So, you know, when I'm working, I put hay out for the cattle and, yeah, lick and all that sort of stuff and mow all the lawns. The grass is growing like wildfire at the moment. That's unbelievable, isn't it? You could get plenty of work in uh, in the in the city, mate, uh, mowing lawns. The lawns are just, I don't know, the council can't keep up with it. I suppose it's hard to get, well, it's hard to get people to do anything. So I suppose mowing lawns is just the same. But, you know, every second lawn is... You know, I don't think there's anything wrong, I suppose, with having a long, uh, unkempt lawn, but that's what uh, the name of the game is, In certainly in Sydney. I can see uh, unmowed lawns everywhere. Yeah, well, this this place, there's three properties on that the guy owns, and, um, yeah, it's, as I said the other week, it's like painting the Harbour Bridge. Once you finish the third one, you've got to go back and do the first one in summertime. Yeah. All right, Thomas. So, and the um, rainbow trout are good eating? Oh, yeah, the best. Very good. All right, Tom. Good on you, mate. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, Matt. See ya. See ya. Bye. Oh, g'day, Marco. It's Lindsay calling from near Mildura. Hi, Lindsay. Yeah, good, mate. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm sitting up in top of a, a telescopic sort of a tower arrangement in a bird hide at a, at a Wedgetail Eagle's nest. Oh wow. And, um, I'm sitting here with my 11 year old grandson, who I've uh, brainwashed into being a, a raptor nut like myself and uh, we're hoping to photograph a, a half-grown eagle chick being fed by its parents, hopefully. <laughs> and why What's your? Why did you do this, Lindsay? What are you... Oh, well, I, I've just been fascinated with birds and particular birds of prey uh, most of my life and uh, I've sort of, made a, sort of a, made a living out of photographing and filming them to a certain extent and... Uh, yeah, now I'm trying to encourage my uh, grandson to do the same thing. Isn't that nice? There's a, bl- a bloke sent me a book, look, uh, a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, uh, same thing. He, he'd done what you are doing when he watched a wedgetail eagle look for uh, probably a year um, with a hide and took photos of it, um, nesting and feeding and all that sort of stuff and moving and building the nest and, and made a lovely book and... Is, do you think I can find? And then, of course, he, he passed away. Um, uh, I, I mentioned it. I wrote to him and said, you know, I love your book. And do you think I can find it in the mess that my office is? Um, I've looked and I've looked at it. But he did the same thing as you. And they are just beautiful photographs, and they're lovely things, aren't they? Eagles, oh, all those yeah, birds yeah. of prey. There's something, something I don't know because they're so and they're fast. Some of the smaller ones. Osprey, the way they and sea eagles—they're just lovely things to look, and even owls. Yeah, yeah, no, they're, they're really great. Yeah, actually, uh, I, I, father and I published a book on on the uh, twenty-four raptor species back in the eighties, uh, last, last century. Right. And after that, I went on filming uh, documentaries, you know, mainly with birds. And uh, yeah, now I'm retired, and I'm yeah, as I say, encouraging my my grandson to. To get it. He doesn't take much encouragement. He was up, he was up at about five o'clock this morning, ready to for action. So, yeah. I hope uh, I hope young kids are interested in because I wonder if they're interested in plants and animals and things like that. Maybe they are. I hope they are in you know in frogs and things because the native world needs a lot of help. You know, not just um, it just needs a lot of people who are you know not um, uh, just can you know interested in their phones and things all the time but but uh the natural world is is great for everything it's great for your mental health and and uh, they need help because they've got no spokespersons if you like the uh, animal world and the plant world yeah yeah actually it's interesting that that sort of comes on to a, a, a bit of a, a beef that i've got about i i cop criticism because i i photograph birds at the nest but i've done it you know i've done it for 50 years and i i, I know you know what I'm doing, and and I can understand why I get criticised sometimes if I if I post a photograph of a, of a, a nesting bird and, and it 
people jump on me and say, oh, you shouldn't be encouraging people to photograph mess. I, I can understand that argument, but also I just feel that I've, over the years I've, I've created a love of the birds because they, they see the intimate sort of behaviour of the birds. You know, uh, uh, some people think oh, an eagle is a nasty killing machine sort of thing, but they see it feeding a, its lovely little chick and they get a different view of it, and, and that's that's been my philosophy anyway. Oh, look, it's <laughs> but it's the natural world, Lindsay, and they're ours. They're they're little Australians who have been here forever, the Wedgetail Eagles and all of those things. And yep, yeah. um, and the natural world needs protecting because, as I say, it has no spokespersons uh, to um, to stand up for it, you know, and, and just to look after it. And, and that's why I bemoan, you know, uh, when I lived in the suburbs years ago, there were all sorts of little birds and, and there were bandicoots and... You know, and and that's all gone, and and even echidnas in in the middle of the suburbs in Sydney, and that's yeah. all that's all gone because of the infilling, and you know that's to me uh, a great shame, um, because you know, you you put a little kid with an echidna or a a bandicoot, and they'll just their eyes will just ah, yeah. uh, and it's and it's a thing of wonder, and it's something that you. You know, if you've seen it as a kid yourself, you'll remember it, and and it's a wonderful thing, you know. So anyway, anyway, but um, yeah, I wish I was out there with you. Where do you live in Mildura? Do you, Lindsay? Or yeah, I, li- I just on the outskirts of Mildura. I, I used to grow grapes around Mildura, and then I I got into fil- filming wildlife documentaries instead. And that was <laughs> might have made me as much money, but it gave me a, a lot more fun. Yeah, so uh, yeah. And and have you got weather at around Mildura, or you're pretty dry there? Oh no! I spent I spent four hours bogged just recently. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's been pretty wet here for for Mildura. Um, yeah, a little had to go through a few boggy patches to get out to this this place where I am at the moment. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's been. Uh, it, I mean, it's, I, I think it's fantastic. It's great. But I've never seen the country around here looking so good at this time of the year, and the bird life is fantastic. So, uh, but yeah, I realise that some people see it as a negative. <laughs> Well, well, as I say, uh, I don't know who said it, but they said, uh, I don't mind the weather, but in Australia we seem to get too much weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, well, I'm not complaining at the moment. You can't have too much rain as far as I'm concerned because I, I don't live in a flood-prone area, so uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not to say I don't sympathise with those people who are copying it at the moment. I'll try and find that book and mention it on the program in the weeks to come, but I've been looking for yeah, it everywhere. Yeah, Got me a bit intrigued to who uh, who might have produced that. I, I'm sort of in contact. Well, with it was just it was just on his own. I'll, I'll have to try yeah. and find the. I'll uh, get Lee Lee Kelly on the job, searching yeah. through our back pages to see when I mentioned it. it. Was yeah, it's a lovely book, lovely book, and he's doing exactly what you and he had the little hide there out in the in the middle of nowhere, just watching the eagles, and they're lovely things, you know. And you can't you can't believe that people would shoot them and stretch them out on fences and stuff because they think they're a danger to... Uh, yeah. Really. Yes, hopefully. They, most, mostly that's all over now, but now and again you hear of a, a little bit of it going on still. Yeah. Uh, well, you, all the horrible things you see, Lindsay, you just you just got to shrug your shoulders and move on because you know most people and, uh, are good and well-intentioned. Good on you, yep. Lindsay. Nice to talk to you. No worries, mate. Good. See you. Bye. This is the All Over News. This is the All Over News, and lots of things are happening now as the world opens up as COVID hopefully recedes and the weather. Well, let's not talk too much about the weather in case. I thought you'd be interested in this from John Harrison who says, Ian, the annual commemoration stroke recognition of the passing of George Goida in 1865 is, despite the ongoing COVID pandemic, still on. The now annual Pull the Weeds Day at Goida's gravesite in the Adelaide Hills will be held this year on Saturday 5th of November, being the closest weekend to the date of George's passing. It'll take place again at his gravesite monument in the Stirling East Cemetery at Aldgate along the Strathalban Road with a brief recognition of his work followed by a working bee, starting with a cuppa and refreshments. And you need to bring your own and probably some tools and gloves to help along. A little bit about goiter. You may have heard of the goiter line. By personal observations during the drought of 1865, George Goiter identified a line. 
above which he recommended that agricultural use of the land was at risk. It approximates to the line of separation of the saltbush, bluebush, so prevalent in the north of the state of South Australia. North of this line, it was suggested that settlers should concentrate on pastoral pursuits. However, following the great drought, there were several good rainfall years and many farmers thought they knew better than goiter and crops were sown and reaped as far north as Farina. Consult your maps. With the return of a normal weather pattern, that is, more droughts, all of these pioneering farmers were forced off their land and many were facing financial ruin, thus dispelling the myth that good rains will follow the plough. John Harrison continues, During and in the later stages of my working career, I was fortunate to be part of several working bees restoring and maintaining various monuments to past surveyors across Australia, from Mount Bedell in the Northern Territory, the border monument between South Australia and WA, and to several others in South Australia. So if you're interested, Stirling East Cemetery on the 5th of November, take an hour or two off to renew old friends who will also, I'm sure, do anything to get out of the house, says John Harrison. I'd like you to meet Johnny Nicole and his wife Barbara Flick Nicole, who I met at a get-together recently of musicians honouring the late Don Burrows. I'd seen Johnny Nicole singing and playing his music many times. He's worked all over Australia and indeed been all over the world. I was born in Bowen. Mm. Well, actually I was born in Ayr and then the family moved to Bowen. I was raised in the church, but music was in the house basically from morning till night really, you know. And in the church as well? Yeah, in the church as well, yeah. And you grew up singing. with. A, oh, you mentioned well, some of them in that song there. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, well, they, they were friends of mine, yeah. We used, to, we used to go out to Horseshoe Bay and sit around and sing songs together, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a wonderful era. I can remember during the war, and, and African-Americans came to our house because they weren't allowed to go to a, a white person's place. They were barred from that, even though they were fighting for their country. But I was lucky they came to our place, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so how good's that? So you learn from them as well. Oh yeah, I have been around the world with music, and I mean, I, and, and that that happened too because uh, I wouldn't have been in the in the business if I didn't have a blind sister. Because my sister Sarah, and she had a lovely voice too. We used to sing together. And you remember Alan Tui's Amateur Hour? Well, we we sang on that. We sang, uh, "Oh, the fasting end is dark, the town is sleeping." You know, via uh, Candias, and uh, we went our heat. And before the final, I, I already had left, and Sarah sang that by herself. And I think she came first or second, I'm not sure, but she had a. She died when she was like uh, 27 because she, uh, she had a knock and lost her sight, and uh, she had a tumour or something at, at the end of it. But uh, she had a beautiful voice too, really. Like, the family was blessed. There was a lot of good singers in that. I'm talking to John Nicole. John, you've written or half-written a song. Um, I've got a lot of those in the drawer, half-written ones, yeah. about melody and where it's gone in... <laughs> In modern music. <laughs> yeah, I've written this song now, and it basically goes like, now listen in, folks, there's something I have to say. I can't find the melody in some songs they write today. Now, there are those that will agree, and those, I'm sure, will not. But in my humble opinion, folks, I think they've lost the plot. <laughs> so, so I wonder if it'll be a big seller, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're hoping, you know. <laughs> you don't know these things, you know what I mean? But you're still playing and still loving it, aren't you? You've still got a great voice at 84. Yeah, I'm, 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 I still, I still love the business because music is good for the soul. I believe it's a healing process. You know, you hear someone, or you go to church, you hear, you hear, you hear the choir. When, when, you know, I had the opportunity to travel all around the planet. And when I was uh, down in Miami, and I'd hear an American choir, and I'd go and stand outside that church and listen to them, and man, it was like it was good for the heart. Beautiful, beautiful singing, beautiful singing. I'm talking to Johnny Nicole, and his wife Barbara's here with me. And there's a picture on the wall, Barbara, of you and the great man, Nelson Mandela. My God, Nelson, tell me about that. Nelson Mandela. Oh, my gosh. It was such a, such a privilege to meet him. When Nelson Mandela came to Australia after he was released from prison, he was to give a speech at the Opera House, and there were thousands of people waiting for him. But he came and met with a few Aboriginal people first and I'm so proud that I was one of them. So it's a photograph that I treasure. An olden days selfie. Absolutely. <laughs> when he walked in the room, you could feel that you were in the presence of somebody just wonderful and I, I treasure that moment. Johnny told me his background and it was the Birragubba. What's your clan and where are you from? I'm Ueli Ai from my on my mother's side. I call myself Ungai, uh, which means a paddy melon wallaby, which is our totem, mm. and that's a matrilineal clan. 
On my grandfather's side, I'm Yudendali, the Trigawana. And on my great-great-grandmother's Susie's side, I'm Bigambal. My grandfather left Queensland, left Bigambal country with his wife, who's a Bigambal woman, Nanny Celia, because the government started uh, sending people to Palm Island. So he had this old horse. My dad was the baby then, and he put Dad and his wife Celia on the back of this old horse, and they came back into New South Wales and settled in Coloranabri. Tell us the story about your brother Joe and the First World War and what happens now. Mm. Pop came back from the First World War, and he treasured the camaraderie that he experienced there. Um, Being away from Australia, he was suddenly treated as just one of the men, you know, who uh, depended on each other to survive. Did you say Joe takes some soil over and sings some songs and clapsticks? He does, he does. Tell us, what does he do? He visits the graves of all the Indigenous men in France, and there's one in England, and he takes soil from their tribal lands to them. He sings a song and does a corroboree at their gravesides, each one of them, He's just a brilliant, brilliant person. And the soldier, I've forgotten his name, who's buried in England, Joe has visited the school in the village where this man is buried over the years and has a great relationship with them. And the children know the story and where that man has come from. They now look after his grave. So Joe always goes to visit them when he goes back and the children and they go out to the gravesite and they know the story. So I think that's pretty awesome too. We should all know the stories. Barbara, it's lovely to talk to you and lovely to meet you. And Johnny, keep playing, mate. Uh, what we need is another supper club like we used to have in the middle of Sydney where you could go and see the best and with Donnie Burroughs and George Goller and oh, John Nicole. It was, uh, yeah, a great era. Look, I, you know, when the nightclubs were here way back, it was like Hollywood. Everyone would get dressed up and go and see Shirley Bassey and Billy Eckstein or whoever, and it was a great era, I mean, that we came through. I wouldn't swap my era for all the money in China, really. <laughs> and I'll keep looking for that melody, mate. I'll, if I find one, I'll, I'll text you. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. G'day, this is Macca. Oh, g'day, Macca. It's Charles Evel here. G'day, Charles. Um, I'm uh, calling from Canberra. I've just been to a major conference for rural doctors in Australia, and it's been absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. Tell me why. Uh, well, um, I'm part of the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine and the Rural Doctors Associations, and we had our uh, annual combined conference and graduated uh, a whole lot of new rural doctors, uh, especially trained to go out and work in rural Australia. And uh, the College of Rural and Remote Medicine has been working hard for this for years, um, and it feels now like we're really getting going. And the graduation ceremony was just wonderful, Mac. I was thrilled a bit. Mm. Um, why? Tell us why. What what touched you about it? Well, uh, partly because I've been involved in all the work that's um, been getting the College of Rural and Remote Med- Medicine going. We have been um, training doctors for the bush, so uh, rural generalists for uh, about... Uh, 20 years, maybe not quite that long, and uh, it's been a lot of work to get it going, but what it, what was nice was just to see uh, all these wonderful people um, parading, receiving their fellowships, um, and we had uh, some fabulous presentations. Uh, one of the ones that struck me was uh, a group of uh, doctors, or our graduates in fact, involved in extreme medicine everything from space medicine, Antarctic, uh, outback medicine, and uh, the extreme medicine reminded me uh, I was working in Derby um, a few years back and I used to do the fly-in, fly-out clinics to uh, One Arm Point. Isn't that a wonderful name, One (laughs) Arm Point? 
Probably not for the bloke who was one armed, but anyway. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, well, that's, that's, I think it's called that because the 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 outlying piece of uh, land looks like one arm. I think that's what it is. Yeah. I don't think it was named after well, a bloke who lost his arm. But anyway, go on. No, well, pretty much that's what it looks like from the air. So I used to um, fly out from Derby and uh, we'd land on little uh, strip one arm point. Anyway, I was in the uh, emergency department at Derby. This pilot came in with a, a cut on his face. He wanted stitching up. And uh, so how did that happen? He said, oh, well, I was on climb out of Derby on about 2,000 feet and hit an eagle. Oh, wow. So I didn't see it. He said there was just a loud bang and the cockpit was full of glass and blood and feathers. And uh, anyway, he got the plane back down and came in. So I said to him, well, you know, next time... I'm flying out to one arm point. I want you for my pilot because anyone that can get a plane back down safely after that will do me. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be very scary, wouldn't it? Oh, man, I'm glad I wasn't on board. Oh, exactly. Um, Uh, There's a lot of... Dr. Charles, I was just going to ask you, uh, uh, rural doctors, always been a shortage, but it seems to me there's a, well, a shortage of everything, shortage of teachers and shortage of good teachers too, and a shortage of doctors everywhere, not just uh, in rural areas, um, but uh, but everywhere, it seems to me. It seems much harder to get a doctor. This is uh, just a, a GP, which is, you know, yep. and, and, and as I mentioned uh, recently, um, uh, people go to chemists now to go to the local pharmacist mm-hmm. because um, yeah. he's the best point, or he or she's the best point of call. But um, we seem to be short of doctors and uh, and then specialists like skin cancer specialists. You know, you'll wait weeks yeah. and weeks and weeks to yeah. see one. Is there a short term solution to that? Not a short term. Is there a solution to that? Well, um, th- there is. I guess there's always a solution. Um, it's not easy. That. It's one of the things that we've been working towards and uh, particularly um, looking at rural doctors. Um, We don't pretend that we can fix uh, the doctor shortage, but that's a a deep problem, that NACA. Um, There's uh, uh, issues about training. There's issues about places to work. There's issues about changes in the expectations of doctors when they work. Um, And... uh, particularly in rural areas, there's uh, issues about keeping the hospital system going because you know, if you're a rural doctor, you uh, you want a hospital to mm. um, practice the trade. Um, it's it's uh, more than we can probably um, cover, but I can tell you there's a lot of work going on on it. Um, uh, let's say New South Wales Health has uh, opened a, a rural uh, medical division in, in an attempt to improve things rurally. Um, we continue to import international medical graduates, but uh, there's a lot of, uh, of um, well, criticism is not the right word, but um, worry that we should maybe be producing our own. Um, well, I think that's, you know, I, I, it seems to me that if, seems to me that if somebody's reasonably bright and really wants to be a doctor or a vet or, or a teacher, they're a good um they're a good bet i reckon anyone who wants to do something really well and yeah. pro- is a good bet in terms of they'll do a good job yeah. actually i i came across um an interesting little snag in uh, getting people into medicine um and so it actually costs you quite a bit of money just to apply i'll bet the the thing that came up when we were talking about uh, how how to get people into medicine um and uh uh, you were saying about if it's bright and you're interested, uh, you should give it a go. Mm. We agree, but uh, actually the selection process costs money. Um, you have to uh, sit for a special exam, um, and that costs money just to uh, sit for it. I can't remember how much it costs, about $1,500. It might be more now. Um, and there are other costs associated just with applying to get to medical school. So if you take a kid um, whose mum and dad don't have all that much money, they might do well at school, um, but they think about spending that money to apply and uh, maybe they don't do it. Yeah. Um, it was pointed out to me at the conference. I hadn't realised that, but it is a bit of a disincentive. We um, uh, have... 
a lot of uh, you know, people from the bush, and we particularly promote Indigenous medicine. Um, we've got a number of um, Indigenous fellows, and we're very proud of that. Um, but they are particularly um, challenged by the selection process sometimes. Um, so we, we have great doctors um, that are practising rural journalists with an Indigenous background. And we had, actually, we had um, a great presentation. Um, a woman from Byron Bay, and I've forgotten her name, came in to uh, show us the um, traditional uh, herbs and medicines, and she only covered a few of them, and I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm going to follow that up a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> things that you can eat and things that were used in Aboriginal um, treatment. Uh, and then uh, another chap... Uh, Look at that! My brain's gone soft. I can't remember his name either. Um, well, you meet so many that. people, Charles. I'm, you just when you meet lots of people, you start to get yeah. you know memory almost full sort of thing. You, know, you just you have no room to put more yeah. people in. <laughs> One thing goes in, two go out. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. So what anyway, you're in, you're in Canberra this morning. Um, what's it like there yeah, this morning? This is our weather time where we talk about weather. Uh, it's uh, it's cool um, with a, a bit of light cloud. Um, very little wind, um, rather for Canberra, I'd guess you'd say it's rather a nice spring day. Yeah, that's, that's the way. Yeah. All right, Charles, you keep in touch and, and nice to talk to you. Um, we've got a great health system in Australia here. and uh, We do. And, and well, I was just, just saying that to Kel. We do, we do have a great health system and we should remember that And uh, before we start complaining about it too much. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it couldn't be better and it doesn't mean we we don't need to keep a very close eye on it to make sure things don't get worse. Yeah, exactly. So I'll, I'll leave it on that. Good on you. And, Not, uh, nice to no, talk to you. No worries. Thanks, See you, mate. Bye. Ben's in Morgan. Morning, Ben. Yeah, good morning, Macca. Yeah, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. You're on the, on the Murray, on the Mighty Murray? Yeah, beside the Murray, I've actually seen it yet. We're just on, we're just on route. We're down the road to... This is our fifth day. We're just coming out of Carapa on uh, Wednesday morning and uh, travelling traveling through to North Wangaratta. Uh-huh. And why and uh, what? How? Tell, tell me more. Uh, around 16 years ago, me and my wife um, traveled to, went over to Carapa for some work and um, yeah, got stuck there and <laughs> uh, raised a family and with some pieces now we're sort of expiry date come and we um we're traveling back and where are you you're going back to victoria are you yeah a little place just out of uh, a one called broom and we've bought a bit of a property up there and um setting up a bit of a show there so yeah it's a bit of a change of lifestyle so i'll say so benny what were you doing in caratha well, i ran a um i started a little business up there and um doing earth moving re- maintenance and repairs and bits and pieces so I've done that for about 11 odd years and, uh, yeah, it's well, come to a bit of a bit of an end there. Like it was just very hard to find labour and bits and pieces, so I thought we'd just pull the pin on it. Yeah, well, I suppose it's been a good experience in lots of ways and, and, and have you been enabled to, you know, raise some money and save some money and buy a little place, have you? Yeah, yeah, we've done, yeah, we've done pretty well of it up there, you know. We've, we've run a few guys and... Push things pretty hard there for a, for a few years, so yeah, it's it's worked out good for us. So we sort of um, we come across there in about end of '06. Um, went over there with a with a Toyota Ute and a water collie dog, and now we've <laughs> now we've come back with um, three road train trips. We've done I've done three loads since this year, so this one this is my last one. Wow, bringing your bits and pieces home. You're going to set up a similar business in um, where you're going to in uh, what did you say, Barrowman? Barrowman? Barrowman, it is. Barrowman. Yeah, just 25, 30k sort of north of Wang. So, yeah, it's out there on the ovens there. So, and three road trains of stuff. <laughs> yeah, three road trains. So I've just um, on our last load. I've, I've flew my wife across. She's driving a little truck back with a trailer. So we've um. Yeah, we've progressed a fair way, I'd say, since we went across there. Well, good on you, Benny. I mean, that's a great little story, I think. Um, and, and it's nice, uh, you know, 
you, if you haven't been to places like Caratha and Headland and stuff, you you know it's a different life over there, isn't it? And and in lots of ways, it's very interesting. I love the people over there. Yeah, it's been a great experience for us over there. Yeah, well, I've, we, we've enjoyed it, but you know, it's, it's sort of a place where it probably does come to a bit of expiry date for a lot of people. And we had we had children growing up without sort of you know any family, and we're a long way from anyone. So it was just you know they need to be influenced from from the grandparents and. Yeah, aunties and uncles, yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff. All right, Benny, what's it like? You struck many potholes <laughs> on your trip? Oh, the road's been pretty good, but we I'd say we, we, once we hit into New South Wales, out towards Balrena, we'll, we'll strike a fair few. There's bloody rough out through there. but Yeah. Uh, but hopefully, yeah, hopefully there's not too much water over the roads and that's obviously quite wet out through some of them places. So, um, yeah, we'll see how we go. But we've had, yeah, it's been a beautiful run so far, even across the Nullar borders. Hardly any wind, which was good. Um, yeah, coming through. Oh, coming through Jamestown there this morning. Oh, it's looking. The crops are looking terrific through there. Like they've, they've had, they're going to have a terrific harvest. Well, that's good. That's good. <coughs> Benny, good on you, mate. Nice to talk to you. Righto, good on you, Macca. Have a good one. It's Laurie here on the Fullerio Peninsula in South Australia. Hi, Laurie. Uh, Macca, uh, recently my wife and I went to the Flinders for a bit of a camp-out trip, and uh, while sort of returning, a friend of mine called me from Talangata on Lake Hume and told me about the uh, flooding spillway at the Dartmouth Dam. Yep. So a- as I worked there in the 70s on that project, uh, we hightailed it over there at the insistence of my wife, mm. and uh, we went right through that area of Victoria, uh, Wedderburn, uh, Rochester, Shepparton, Vanilla, which is now in flood, and there was plenty of water around then, to arrive up at Talangata, and then the following day we went up to Dartmouth to view the spillway and flood, and what a sight. Very moving for me, uh, because I worked there, I had a lot of mates there, and so on and so forth, but it's the first time the spillway has flooded in 26 years. Yes, I know. Was, uh, Bernie, I think Bernie, was, Bernie rang and told us of that, and he went... It's an amazing thing to see, isn't it? You know, and we were told some time ago that none of the dams were going to over in Australia were going to fill again, and let alone overflow. But uh, that's happening everywhere. I think the Hume Weirs overflowing, and uh, and lots of dams, lots of dams are full, mate, uh, which we've never seen before for all well, for a long time in Australia. Well, we actually visited Hume Weir as well, and they had seven gates open there, and the Murray was running pretty hard. Um, so with the Dartmouth Dam, the spillway was actually the source of all of the rock uh, for the earth and rock filled dam of the wall for Dartmouth. And that created a, uh, a massive uh, series of benches, about nine of them. So when the water comes over almost for the full width of the uh, spillway, it's all rock. Uh, mm. There's a hell of a roar, just a huge roar, bearing in mind that the whole height of it is about 170 metres with nine benches. So uh, it is an impressive sight. There'd be nothing else like it in Australia at the present moment. No, and when you see the when you see that amount of water and just coming out of, it's it is it's uh, it's awe inspiring, uh, isn't it, Laurie? Well, you realise the power of water. I mean, water shapes the planet more than anything else, except you know the planet's own regurgitations and so on of rock and volcanoes. But water is the principal agent of the change of the planet, and Right now, I think uh, right through Victoria and New South Wales, a fair bit of change going on. I'll say. I'd love to go and see that, but, I, yeah, um, uh, I'd love to go and do a dam do a dam tour, Laurie, and just go and have a look at the, the dams full of water because it's a site, you know, as I've said, you know, people have been ringing over the last, you know, five or ten years saying, you know, our dam's got, you know, 8% water in it and 15%, you know, things like that. And now, invariably, they're all full. Well, even at uh, Wedderburn, which doesn't have a river flowing through it, they've got a, uh, a reservoir sort of upstream on some creeks, and uh, that's apparently threatening to breach and uh, release the water to run through the town. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But all of the towns that we went through, particularly on the way back, we followed closer to the Murray, but all of the rivers that run out of the uh, western watershed of the Victorian Great Dividing Range all finish up in the Murray. And uh, that, of course, has only got one outlet, and that's in Lake Alexandrina. Mm. And already 
uh, Manum, I think they've closed roads along the floodplain where a lot of shacks are and so on and so forth. But this has also been repeated up in the Riverland where virtually nobody can get to the Murray anymore unless they've got a boat. No, and you, you go, you know, the Murrumbidgee, the Lachlan in New South Wales, all those rivers right out, right out, Castle Ray, the Macquarie, there's water everywhere. Um, <laughs> and Laurie, it's... Uh, it's interesting in some ways to dispassionately look at it. Somebody said they were above, you know, up above. You get up there and, and look through your, you know, your little helicopter or something like that. But, uh, gee, down on the ground, it's wet, wet, wet. Uh, it's sad because a lot of farmers, uh, a lot of industry uh, that rely on, you know, access to the land are going to suffer this season big time. But, uh, you know, how many places were originally built on floodplains? simply because there was water available because of small communities in the early days. And now uh, councils seem to allow people to go and build on floodplains. And uh, when they get flooded, it really can't come as a surprise because, as Dorothea McKellar said, of droughts and flooding rain. Yeah, and she was only repeating something she'd heard from, you know, years before from her parents and grandparents, etc. It's a bit like right. it's a bit like people expecting, you know, interest rates to remain where they are. You know, <laughs> it's not going to happen. You know, they might be zero for a while, but sooner or later they're going to have to rise because that's that's the nature of the beast. So, I don't well, know. as they say, Macca, the only constant is change. Exactly. <laughs> Good on you, Laurie. Thanks for okay. that report. No worries, mate. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Maker. Okay, bye. Johnson Agnes Waters. Good morning, John. Good morning, Maker. Greetings from Agnes Water. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm down here volunteering with the Captain Cook 1770 Agnes Water Lions Service. What about the Cook Upper for the Disabled Surfers Association? John, John, your phone is not the best. I really can't understand it. I don't know what's happened between the time you're talking to my producer and the time I'm talking to you now. But um, how's that? Is that better? That's better. Yes. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Sorry, Mac. Yeah, I'm, I'm part of the Captain Cook 1770 Agnes Water Line Service down yeah. here at Agnes Water down, down at the beach. Lovely place. Yes. And what's happening? It is. Well, we're just uh, we're running the barbecue to feed the volunteers. For the Disabled Surfers Association, They're having a day down here, We're taking a lot of uh, less fortunate kids and giving them an experience on the surfboard. Oh, what a good thing to do! Yeah, yeah. But uh, actually, the main part of my call was uh, today is the fifth anniversary of the sinking of the fishing vessel Diane, and uh, six six men lost their lives in that disaster. And uh, last night was the opening of the Memorial up at the 1770 headland commemorating those six lives. And today the memorial is open for people to go up and did also you, pay their respect. Did you say that happened five years ago? Is that what you said? Five years ago at 7.30 tonight, the what, ship rolled over. How? What, in weather or something, was it? Heavy weather, 35, 45 knots, five metre following seas. Uh, they left the safety of the port of Bundaberg and four and a half hours later, the ship broached, rolled over. Wow. Six men drowned, one survivor who the boat, the upturned hull sunk from underneath him at about midnight. He saw lights in the distance and uh, there were about four nautical miles offshore and uh, the boat sunk from underneath him and he started swimming. Wow. At 6.30 in the morning, he nearly got run over by a passing yacht that was uh, out of just left 1770. That was one lucky man. Did the, and the yacht picked him up, did it? Yeah, yeah, they nearly ran over him, missed him by about a metre and a half. I often the person hear, on watch got a hell of a fright. Yeah, I often hear stories, and I read them with in amazement, of, of people who are ditched into the water. I, th- I think Matthew Hayden was one of those people who ditched in the water and swam for a couple of hours, didn't he? And and in, during, yeah. the, during the Second World War, I read... Um, um, Ray Parkin's book about um, the Perth and when they were sunk and, and those blokes were in the water and it's happened all the time. They were in the water for, for you know, days um, and they managed to stay afloat. And I I mean, I don't know how you could swim for hours and hours, but some people have done it, but um, gee. Yeah. Well, these guys were slug divers. They dive for base de mer, trepang, mm. you know, sea cucumber, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. These guys you know, were in their late 20s, early 30s. Built like the proverbial brick outhouse. 
extremely healthy. They lived for the water. They were, they were professional divers. And you know, the, it was a natural environment for them. Reuben just happened to be able to have got out of the upturned hull before it sunk. And, uh, yeah, he kept swimming. Keep on swimming. Then he can't swim anymore. Yeah. He was very, very, very lucky. But, uh, but yeah, uh, uh, one of the young fellows, uh, I knew him. His dad and I go back about 50 years. And, uh, yeah, it's all it's a little, still a little bit raw. I'm a mariner from a, from a trade for 40-odd years. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just one of those tragedies. One of those tragedies. And how's things but in Agnes, Agnes Waters this morning, I was going to ask you, John? Mate, Agnes Water, let's see. It's, uh, it's slightly overcast. Um, there's about 130 nippers that turned up here with their families. Wow. And they're having, a, they're having their day down here. And, and, of course, the Disabled Surfers Association will be putting out some uh, less fortunate kids on, uh, on surfboards to give them the thrill of shipping away. And Agnes Waters, 1770, go-ahead area, more and more people moving to places like that? Oh, Macca, we came here, what, five and a half years ago, and it was about it was less than 3,000 people. Now uh, we reckon there's about 6,000 thousand. And uh, and growing and uh, mate, you, people can't get a place to, like the rest of the country. You can't get a place to rent. Places are selling like hotcakes. And we oh. came here to retire. Yeah. Just get involved with a bit of the uh, volunteering stuff from time to time. And about and, the uh, and, and about the last place on um, on the Queensland coast where you can get a surf. Is that right? Yeah, the most northerly uh, place on the mainland. You can get a decent wave, and it's running at about oh, three quarters of a metre. At the moment, uh-huh. so I'm just looking at it at the moment. I just don't want to, don't want to upset you while you're stuck in your office. But the surf looks pretty good. <laughs> good on you, John. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for your time, Mackie. You have a great day. Thanks, mate. Bye. It's Liz in Wagga. G'day, Liz. I've been a GP locum as my career for 30 years or since 91, mm-hmm. with the on and off times. But I just heard the tail end of your talk to the doctor there in the conference. I couldn't get there because I'm filling in for doctors who want to go there, <laughs> things like that. And, you know, I go all over Australia and the Fair Star Cruiser and, and Lord Howe Island. It's really lovely, but it's so important. And there's a shortage of locums as well as a shortage of doctors. But if we could give them a break so they could not burn out... That would be wonderful. One doctor said, I haven't had a holiday for five years, things like that. You know, so we need to sort of to be known as a craft group, I say. We need some sort of weekend training sessions for being out in weird places and learning local areas and that sort of thing. So I thought I'd get my word in. Yeah, well, good on you. And I, I think, like everybody say, says for whatever they're doing, you know, like Norma just said, Norma's a... A musician, but you know, and and she's got a farm. And the last couple of years have been very challenging. And and I always think that you know, GPs are at the front line of what's happened in the last two two years uh, with with COVID. Yeah. And, and that's you know, so, sometimes there's no there's as I said at the time, there's no book how to manage COVID, but there's no book how for GPs how to. It's it's really. Yeah, I don't know. You need the thing I'm, support, I'm campaigning don't you? for the, lo- the locums as a group. They just the AMA and the rural doctors, this and that, and you know, college of GPs. You don't they have these up top conferences, and they don't say let's get a few locums in to tell us what their life's all about. So mm. we have a life they don't really know. They think we run in, charge the earth, and go out again. Well, I love going to these places, and I want to do the best for them. Yeah. Well, mm. you 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 need locums for locums. <laughs> Or something like oh, that. Oh, well, yes, I know. It's oh. a shortage. I'm probably the only one doing it around this area, but, you know, I go to lots of funny places. Yeah. Well, I've had I had, I've had a couple of calls. I know uh, Dr. Ross, the bloke we talked to in Bathurst, he goes out to various places, and I've talked yeah, to a number good. a number of locums who who travel around, and and it's a it's a great <laughs> thing to do. And there's nothing. It's like you know being a dairy farmer. I think imagine you have to get up every morning, seven days a yeah. week, and you go and milk your cows, and then in the afternoon yeah. you do the same thing, and and they just love a break. You know, they would love a break, and oh, yes. every, everybody. A, a, yeah, a break is good. Ones, you know, yeah. it's it's just to have a couple of days off where you, you know, even a couple of days is 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 yeah. 
you need a recharge because otherwise you go a bit funny. It doesn't matter what well, you do. Well, they need it, and we need to be a group that can be given just a bit of extra training. Mm. They did years ago just for a week, and, and South Australia did it. Used to have a week long for locums, which was for, well, I didn't have got there. I'm in New South Wales, but you know that sort of thing means brings you up to date with all the weird places, the different specific things. You know, like how to do a, a dive check for a person who Lord Howe Island wants to do a scuba dive. I've never done the test. Heavens mm. above. You know, specific things. You find industries have certain injuries. You know, Tumut has the timber mill. I found a 70-year-old lady with a finger off, and I jokingly said, it was that from the mill? She said, yep. <laughs> she worked at the mill. You know, like, wow. you know, the specific things for specific places. Yes, yeah, like the dentist. Uh, who, I spoke to a dentist in Cobra, and I said, How's things? She said, oh, it's good. It's just different here. She said, you know, somebody comes in and I said, uh, they've had the front tooth sheared off. And she said, oh, I was head butted by a goat. Um, that, would yeah. ne- that would never happen in the suburbs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right. So it's very specific. So anyway, thanks for, for – get- I'm speaking on behalf of all the locums because they all feel the same way. And why did you – quickly, why did you become a locum, do you think? Why did you like Well, I was a single lo- doctor in, in a practice in Wagga. We started at 11 years. I was trying to work out a way to graciously get out of doing maternity. And, uh, and then I realised there was a, such a need around because they used to ring me because the, we used to have to need a locum for a year and I had a few names. So I'd give them out and then I thought, hang on, there is a need. So I'm going out. I hadn't been married then, but I married a couple of years later, a retired guy. So we, we were married 22 years and he'd either come with us around Australia doing locums or do locally or he'd stay at home and I'd go locally. So it fitted in really well. Um, you know, so that, that was really interesting. Liz, and then kept going. Yeah, good on you, Liz. Yeah, we need more locums and locums for locums. Good on you, Liz. Yep, thank you. See you. Right. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.